John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Center Point. I'm so glad you're along for this installment of our series entitled Counting on God. It's from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. If you haven't spent much time in the book of Numbers, you're not alone. Uh, it starts off with a census where some people are counted or numbered, and that is just not an exciting way to start a book, okay? Uh, so a lot of people stop there, but if they keep going, they'd find out that after the people of God are counted, there's a lot of stories where the people learn to count on God. And today we're going to cover one of those stories. In fact, it's a story where people had to count on God for salvation, where they had to count on God to rescue them. If anybody's ever asked you the question, well, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need to be saved? Well, today we've got a good answer for you. And it's because we need saving and we can't rescue ourselves. The wonderful news for all of us is, is that Jesus came into the world to save lost sinners when we can't save ourselves. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. amen. So we're going to have a word of prayer, ask God to bless our time together, we're going to jump right in. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice, the Old Testament and new. Thank you for this wonderful story out of the book of Numbers today that reminds us that we can count on you for salvation. And Lord, that all who come to you can be saved. And so Lord, I just pray that today you'll speak and move me out of the way. Remind us of the good news from your word. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Point one, the people of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they refused to enter the promised land. They didn't trust God. Instead, they grumbled and complained. If you were with us last week, you'll know that they got right up to the edge of the promised land. The book of Numbers occurs after they have left Egypt, where they were in slavery for hundreds of years, and they made their way to the promised land, and these events in the book of Numbers occurred during that transition period. So if we could have that map up on the screen. If, um, we used this last week, and I'm going to refer to it again because this is kind of a sequel to what we talked about last week. On the left-hand side, you'll see where they started in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, came down, went down to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they spent a little over a year. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. They got the whole community organized. They've got leadership positions filled. They were able to build the tabernacle. Everything was ready. So that after that, after they were finished at Mount Sinai, you follow the red line up on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. You'll see they took a left at Kadesh. They took a left and went up to Kadesh. It was there they sent out spies, 12 spies, a leader from all 12 of the tribes, to spy out the land. The land they spied, up, spied out was directly above that where Jerusalem is in Israel. They spent 40 days going through the land. They found out it was a fertile land flowing with milk and honey. But they came back and said, the bad news is, is there are giants in the land. We can't go in. We're all going to die. Our children are going to be captured by these people. It's horrible. We've got to go back to Egypt. Now, back to point one. Because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years old or older and was included in that original census, that registration, will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to you. This is God speaking to them when they refuse to go in. You said your children would be carried off as plunder? Well, I will bring them safely into the land, and they'll enjoy what you've despised. Because your men explored the land for 40 days, you must wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for each day, suffering the consequences of your sin. God had mercy on them that he didn't kill them on the spot. 
And Moses pleaded with him that, that he would not do so. And the Lord said, I won't, but these people won't go in. If they won't trust me, their children will. I'm still honoring my commitment that the land will belong to them and their children, but they won't be the ones who see it. And that's where we left the story last week. Well, today we're picking up the story. That's Numbers 14. Today we're going into Numbers 21. Seven chapters later, but 38 years have passed. They're coming toward the end of the 40 years of wandering. And that brings us to point two. Near the end of their wanderings, the next generation started grumbling and complaining again. Again. And God punished them. A whole new generation has come on the scene. Their grandparents and parents have passed away, and they are now facing a situation where it's easy for them to grumble and complain. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Let me just stop right there and catch you up to speed. Now, this is my version of that map, which is not nearly as accurate, okay? So I want you to know that we're still following the same red line, that they crossed through the Red Sea, they went on down to Mount Sinai, came up, went over to Kadesh. On that other map, it showed that they had to go back, and then there was a circuitous route. Well, in reality, during those 38 years, what's happened here, here's what it looked like. And if each of these laps is a year, i got a long time to go. This is kind of like when you're waiting for the guy in front of you at the post office to show something on his phone, you know. You get the idea. 38 years. What had happened right before this is, I'm starting in Numbers 21, verse 4. In those first four verses, or in the chapter before this, they'd gone up toward the promised land because it was almost over. And when they got right here next to Edom, there's a main route that went straight in. 38 years earlier, they could have walked right in, but there was a new king that had come to power, some new leadership in Edom, and the Edomites said, no, you can't pass. We don't trust you. We won't let you through our territory. And when they inquired of the Lord about this, the Lord said, I don't want you to fight against them. The descendants of Israel, or the descendants of Jacob, the, dis- the people of Edom, uh, were the descendants of Esau. And they said, those are your relatives. If they won't let you pass, you need to go around. And so when it says... They were headed toward the Red Sea. This is what happened. They had to turn around and go back and go all the way around. When you read about Joshua and the battle of Jericho, Jericho is right here. This was going to take months. There's several million people, plus their flocks and herds. They were within spitting distance of the promised land. And now they had to turn around. Now listen to it again. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in this wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. This is exactly what their parents had done When they refused to go into the promised land, they said, we need to go back to Egypt. And God had punished them. And now the next generation has come on the scene, and they're doing the same thing. It's important to note here, when they faced delays and difficulties, they forgot 
that God was protecting and providing for them. Man, it's easy to forget what God is giving us. Moses, a few months later, when they finally got over here, across the Jordan River uh, from Jericho, he said, Do not forget that it was the Lord your God that led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, where it was so hot and dry, he gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. And he did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did this so you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors on an oath. Moses was telling them then when they entered the promised land, they were going to get blessed. And he said, be careful then, you're going to forget the Lord. But it was also the lesson they were learning here when they had delays because it was easy to forget the Lord. So when is it easy to forget the Lord? When things don't go the way we planned, when things take a lot longer than we thought, when things are a lot more difficult. Anybody been through any of those times in your life? Ever? Yeah, that's called Tuesday. Okay? This is the way life is. And it's so easy when we sit there and think, well, Lord, I'll tell you what, all I got to do is do this, and then three years I'll be president of the company, and then I'll win the lottery, and then I'll retire. This is good. This is a good plan. And the Lord goes, well... I'll tell you what, John, there are a few things in your life that I want to work on, and I don't want you to face this battle right now. So I'm going to take you around this. This could be in a dating relationship. This could be in a career. This could be in starting a business, education. We face delays. We face difficulties. And we say, well, God, what are you doing? And then it's easy to grumble and complain. The Lord doesn't know what he's doing. Prayed about it, and now there's this delay. That Moses, he's taken us the wrong way. God's forgotten us. We should just go back to Egypt. We're all going to die out here. Hmm. Another note here. It's easy to fall into the sins of grumbling and complaining and forget all that God has done for us. It's easy. We talked about grumbling and complaining a couple weeks ago. The reason we're talking about it again right now is because it happened again. It happened again to the children of Israel. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so we would not crave evil things as they did, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Look, if you and I think that we're immune to this, don't kid yourself. That's what the warning is. It's a New Testament warning, warning us about an Old Testament temptation to grumble and complain. Has God blessed you richly? Has God taken care of you? Well, then don't forget those things. And it's easy to when we face unexpected delays and hardships. We have to go way around. And we're within spitting distance of something we want. And that brings us to a life application. Grumbling and complaining reveals ingratitude and unbelief. And these are serious sins. That's not the way we like to call grumbling and complaining. Well, it doesn't mean I don't believe in God or trust Him. It just means I'm really angry that what I want isn't being given to me. That's all. doesn't mean I don't believe in him. 
I'll trust him. Well, well, you know, I just don't think he's doing the right thing. That's all. But I mean, I'm not saying he's not doing the right thing. I'm just, well, that's what I'm saying. Okay, and so you see how it works. We can start rationalizing things. And the children of Israel, they were grumbling and complaining, saying God doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, that could happen to me. That could happen to you. Today, when you hear his voice, this is a New Testament reference again, Hebrews 3, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people that Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who had sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the very people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. A lack of trust always prevents us from receiving God's best. And this is what he wants us to understand. And we're seeing that in this story today. Now, what's really interesting is, is that this area, you know, all the snakes that attacked them, I mean, wasn't that really a strong response? Well, this area has poisonous snakes all through it. In fact, it's interesting in some of the writings of Lawrence of Arabia, if you ever saw the movie or things, Lawrence of Arabia was a real guy. His name was T.E. Lawrence, and he was a World War I Green Beret type. I mean, he was a, a Rambo. And some of you don't even remember who Rambo was. Okay, anyway, a tough guy, okay? A really great military hero in, you know, 100 years ago, 1917 or so. He fought the Turks here, right in this area. And it's interesting because he has accounts of all these battles and he had men with him in his company who were fearless. I mean, these were brave soldiers. And the one thing he said that they were terrified of were the snakes in the wadis and little stream beds in this area around Mount, in the Sinai Peninsula. He said at night it was the most dangerous, ter- most terrifying place you could ever go. Because if you got bitten by one of these snakes, then they would inject a venom into your veins that would burn like fire and you would die a slow, agonizing death. God had been protecting his people for these 38 years. And then they come up here and they go, we need to go back to Egypt. We know better than what God does. And God says, well, fine. Handle it on your own. And as soon as the snakes started attacking them, they go, oh God, we did a terrible thing. We forgot all about your protection. There was a pillar of cloud that had been guiding them. We forgot that you're the one who's guiding us. You're giving us direction where to go. They'd forgotten about how good the manna was that they picked up every day, free of charge. And had given them health and strength. And God provided God's provision, his protection, his direction, his loving care. And the same thing can happen to us. We can forget all about everything that God has done for us and grumble and complain. And that brings us to point three, where the people confessed their sins and asked Moses to pray for them. In an earlier generation, the people were stiff-necked and tried to go in on their own. Well, these children and grandchildren had learned. This time, they made up their mind right away. The best, uh, best thing to do was confess their sin. Well, then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. And he did. Now, a couple of life applications right out of those verses right there, out of that verse, are these. First of all, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Can you read that with me, please? If we confess our sins to him, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Oh, this is so important to remember. You may meet people, I meet people routinely who talk to me this way. They come in and go, you know, I'd, I'd love to get right with the Lord, but I've just sinned too much. I've committed too many sins. I can't be forgiven. God will never forgive me. I love having them read this verse out loud, just like, those verses out loud, just like I asked you, or First John 1, 9 there. Because if we confess our sins to him, he'll forgive us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? amen. So the people confessed. They also asked Moses to pray for them. And you know what? Here's another life application. God loves it when we pray for people who've mistreated us. They'd mistreated Moses. They weren't just grumbling against God. They were grumbling against Moses too. That Moses, he doesn't know where he's going. He's been leading us around in circles for 38 years. All he does is sit around and write the Bible. I mean, he wrote the first five books. I mean, all of that would have been written during this time. And they grumbled and complained against his leadership. And yet when the snakes came, they came to him and said, please pray for us. And what's wonderful is Moses did. Jesus said this. He said, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. Well, what would you pray when you pray for enemies? Well, I'd pray God smite them. Okay? No, that's not what we're supposed to be praying. Okay? We're supposed to be praying like Moses did. For the very people who grumbled against him, he cried out on their behalf, asking God to forgive them and to lead them and to heal them. I mean, what if we put all this together and when people mistreat us and are acting stubbornly or ruthlessly or wickedly even, what if we prayed for them? God, would you bring them to a point of confession? Would you convict them of their sins? God, would you show them the right way to go? God, would you lead them to you? Lord, I want this person who's been so mean to me, who spread all that gossip about me, I want her to come to Christ so she can be a, a sister in Christ. God, that person who took that promotion from me, who undercut me, Lord, I want you to convict them of, what, of their sin, and Lord, I want you to introduce, have someone in their lives, put someone in their lives who will show them who Jesus is so they can come to Christ. I want that person to become a brother in Christ. I want you to forgive him, save him, and I want you to lead him on the right path. I mean, what would happen if we started praying that way? Not harboring grudges, forgiving people. Listen to Jesus again. You've heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Moses prayed for him, even though they were the ones who grumbled against him and had time and again. And it was their parents and grandparents who'd wanted to stone Moses and go back to Egypt 38 years earlier. He'd been around these folks all along. And he prayed for them anyway. Amazing. Well, it was a good prayer. God provided a solution in answer to the prayer. Then the Lord told Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole and then anyone who is bitten by a snake could look at that bronze snake and be healed. It would be an act of faith. Remember what had happened here. When they had to go around, they broke faith and said, we don't trust God anymore. 
And this was an opportunity for them to trust in him again. It's interesting that Jesus, this is a note in your outline, said this Old Testament story was a picture of what he came to accomplish on the cross. Many of us are familiar with John 3.16, that God loved the world so much he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You may not have realized this, but this story about the bronze snake on the pole is referred to in John 3.14, two verses earlier. Let me read 14 and 15 and 16 all together. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now look, here's a little side-by-side comparison in your outline there of the bronze serpent and Jesus. The people who were, had to look to the bronze servant, serpent, their bodies were poisoned with venom. When we look to Jesus, we do so because our souls are poisoned with sin. The people in the wilderness, God's solution for them was a snake on a pole. By Jesus hanging on the cross, God's solution was his son on the cross. With the bronze serpent, they were saved when they looked at the serpent. The scripture tells us that we're saved by faith when we look to Jesus. With the bronze servant, they were utterly dependent on God to save them. And with Jesus, we're utterly dependent on God to save us, too. Listen to a couple of scriptures that talk about these very concepts. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is the Apostle Paul. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. We come to Christ as sinners who need saving. The people who looked at the snake on the pole were dying of the venom. And they had to look to the pole to be healed. It was an act of faith, and it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, old or young, had a PhD, or didn't even know how to read. All the people who looked at it, who were dying from the snake bite, needed to look to be healed. It's the same way when we come to Christ. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. All of us come to Christ and receive his grace because we are sinners who need him to save us. The good news is we can all come, no matter who we are or what we've done. And again, if that's anywhere near good news to you this morning, would you say amen? amen. I mean, think about this. Just look to the serpent and you can be healed. I mean, you see how it takes away any kind of religious performance. Yeah, well, I did a better look than you. Did you see that? I did some really good looking. Yeah, the, no, none of the other hours got the interest in that either. Anyway, so my point is, <laughs> but if we, it's ridiculous to think that I gazed at the pole better than you did. It has nothing to do with my performance and how hard I looked. The miracle happened because it was an act of faith. And the God in whom they placed their faith healed them. Christ has rescued us from the curse. This is Galatians 3.13, pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it's written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who's hung on the tree. Looking at the snake was the antivenom that cured them. Looking to Jesus is what takes away the sting of sin and death. It takes, it takes all the punishment for our sin. Christ does. He does upon himself on the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now one other thing you can write at the bottom of those two columns there between the bronze serpent and Jesus was this. The choice was theirs, and the choice is ours. This was the first time in God's dealing with the children of Israel that he didn't just deal with them corporately as a mass where they offered en masse, where they were dealing with one sacrifice for all the people. In this one, each of them had to personally respond. They had to, in order to be healed, you had to look yourself. In order to come to Christ, I need to accept Christ myself. I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I mean, this is why it's so important to confess our sins. I have to confess I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. We've said many times at Center Point in the past that God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. Well, my mom believed in Jesus, so that's got to count for something for me. Well, my dad was an elder or a deacon in a church. Well, good for dad. What about you? My brother listened to Billy Graham. I'm glad. What about you? What about me? In order to be healed, you had to look to the serpent on the pole. In order to have your sins forgiven, you have to come to Christ. I do. You do. The whole world does. He's the only cure for our sin. And the good news is, it's available to all. We just need to come to Christ. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man has to be lifted up, just like the bronze serpent on the pole. And let me make a note here. The bronze serpent itself wasn't magic. This is made clear 700 years later in the book of 2 Kings. After the people had been healed, they apparently kept the bronze snake in the pole, and they kept it, and then sadly, over the hundreds of years, people began to believe that there were magic powers associated with it, and it became an idol or a, a, a relic. So in the days of King Hezekiah, hundreds of years later, here's what happened. Hezekiah was a good king, and he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done, and he removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and he cut down the Asherah poles. He tore down all the idols that people had built. And he broke up the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had begun offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan, and Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Nehushtan simply means piece of brass because it had no power. And when Hezekiah discovered people were worshiping it, he took out a hammer and smashed it to bits. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. God is the one who heals you. God is the one who saves you, not a piece of brass. And we need to understand this. There's no magic relic that we need to put our trust in. Our trust is in the Lord. We can't earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Our salvation comes from the Lord. But the good news is, that means anyone can come. And it also means, then, that the whole world needs Jesus. And that's our last life application. Paul talks about this once more in 2 Corinthians 5. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. 
The whole world is snake bit. We're all sinners. This isn't just an American problem. This isn't just an Alabama problem. People all over the world need Jesus. And that's why we believe it's important to tell them. We have a mission group out right now. Tristan Finley. Tristan, if you come up here. It's one of the young uh, folks who was involved with a trip that we had to Peru over the last week. And Tristan, you just got back, right? Yes, sir. And part of your uh, trip there, a part of the experience that you had in Peru was you were sent out as, and given opportunities to share your faith, right? Yes, sir. How'd that go for you? Well, the first day we went out in the mission field, uh, was kind of intimidated and kind of sat back and watched everybody else do their thing. But that next morning in my quiet time, I read something in Ephesians that stood out to me that it was telling me to get out of my comfort zone because uh, God will give you strength. So on the bus on the way to the, the market to do evangelism the next day, I prayed to God that he would move me out of the way and speak through me. And um, the first lady we went to, I had the opportunity to lead her to accept Jesus as a personal Savior. Boom. Okay. Anyway, that's great. And so you had somebody that prayed to receive Christ right then. What happened after that? Um, by the end of the trip, I got so humbled by what I was doing and what God was doing through me. I got to lead five people to accept Jesus. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. That was while you were in Peru. Now you're in Alabama. And that's the thing. <laughs> we all, we all go on mission trips to spread the love of Jesus, but what we miss and we don't realize is that people in our own community need that love also. Yeah. And so what would you say to someone who says, well, look, I understand. And I, I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and, uh, and I can come to him, but I don't know about sharing my faith with someone. What would you say to them? I'd tell them to pray for it and uh, ask for strength because you can't do it by yourself. And I couldn't have done it by myself. But when you prayed, God gave you courage. Did he give you the right words to say? He did. Yes, sir. Thanks for going and thanks for being available. Appreciate you. Can we give him one more round of applause? Thank you. Look, I'm often asked, hey, when you guys take mission trips, why don't you just keep the people here and just send the money that you're going to spend on airfare and other things? And that way, whatever project you're trying to accomplish, it'd be a lot more efficient. The locals get jobs. The money could be used better. Then you're done. Well, we're not going down there just for a project. We do projects. But we also take people like Tristan because we want Tristan and the others who are on that, what, 28 people on that trip? We do this so that they can, be, they can be exposed to what God is doing in another part of the world and they can grow. Mission trips are life-changing experiences for us as much as anybody. I mean, understand this. Let me read this again. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave Tristan... He gave John, he gave Debbie, he gave Sally, he gave Bob the wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. And we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. I mean, the reason we're spending time studying these stories is Jesus said a story like that helps you understand what I came to do. Those people were dying. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. But through faith, when they looked at the pole that Moses had set up, they were healed. He said, that's exactly the way it is for me. When I am lifted up, all who come to me in faith will be forgiven. Paul said, Jesus became a curse to set us free from the curse. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. 
Jesus is our Savior. He rescued us from an impossible situation that we could not remedy ourselves. And so this is a lesson about counting on Jesus for salvation. Because God always comes through and he forgives those who call on him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, I pray that you will convince us of the things that we have read today. I pray that you will convince us of the stories in the Old Testament and the stories in the New. I pray that you will convince us that you love us and that you will save us and that we cannot save ourselves. We are sinners who need a Savior. That's why we worship you, Lord. You have done for us things that we cannot do. You have rescued us. You sacrificed your own son because you loved us so much. So we give you thanks, Lord. And we ask, oh God, that you would open our eyes for opportunities to tell others this good news as often as we can. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.